0: way more tax if they don't
1: yeah the, 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 let's let's also could you uh, point out the difference uh, because you know people just generally say, yeah, mushrooms are legal in Denver now and they're going to be legal in Oregon and d c. What about the differences in these laws between say these three places?
0: Um, sure, so uh, again, have to start with the with the notion that federally it's all illegal, so you know everything right. we're talking about federally doesn't exist. you can't do it. Uh, if you look around the country, there are little pockets of legalization opening up in discrete cities, and uh, again, Oregon, as you just referenced, is taking the audacious step of trying to open psilocybin to the whole state. Um, it's IP34, it's their, their initiative, which is on the ballot for November. Um, meanwhile, uh, like two, three weeks ago, I was reading, DC has a, a deprioritization initiative, and I'll explain the difference so what Oregon is trying to do is to create an entire structure of, of um, I'll call them psilocybin centers. I think that's what the term is in the uh, initiative. And they want to have these psilocybin centers under some sort of a regulatory agency that's yet to be created. The initiative would have to pass first. And that center will be staffed by people of some yet-to-be-determined suitable qualification. It's not necessarily all going to be, uh, you know, PhDs or psychiatrists. And an individual, if they're suitably licensed by this hypothetical future program, will be able to go to this psilocybin center and partake in psilocybin at the center. Uh, And then the initiative goes on to provide that there is an integration session that the center must offer you. You're not required to accept it. You could theoretically, you know, go have your psilocybin experience and go home afterwards and never talk to anybody about it again if you didn't want to. But they have to make the integration available, which, which I think is very important, and I love that they included that. I think that was very wise, and also wise that they made it an option. Now, compare that to DC. What DC is proposing with their initiative is no structure at all. Um, I kind of call it like fight club. It's like the first rule of fight club is don't talk about fight club. So what DC is proposing is just to deprioritize law enforcement at the local level so that you as an individual could possess a certain quantity of, say, psilocybin mushrooms without having fear that the police will be specifically coming to look for you. But be clear, a deprioritization of Criminal enforcement is not decriminalization, and it also doesn't mean the police are going to be hands off. What it means is if their initiative passes, you want to be discreet, you want to keep it out of sight, out of conversation, out of public eye, you know, do at home what you would do at home, and leave it at home, and don't flash it around. Because if you do, uh, their initiative would absolutely allow the police to still arrest you and charge you, and, and you could go to jail for it. So it's, you know, sort of a fight club or a don't ask, don't tell kind of a scenario. Two very different approaches. I don't know which one's better. Maybe a hybrid of the two is the best. Who knows? But I like that they're both happening simultaneously. I hope they both pass so that the whole country can observe and learn from those experiences. And that's one of the great things about having 50 states is each little state can be its own little test crucible and, you know, let the best program win.
1: That's kind of what I thought about uh, cannabis, uh, Gary, you know, because there, there are so many different uh, ways of going about it, like the Washington way, the, the Colorado way, The uh, you know, I lobbied against uh, Prop 64 here in California because I thought it was just, you know, overregulated. But uh, in any event, uh, I do think it's, it like you just said, it's an advantage having 50 states uh, try all these different approaches because we can really maybe come up with the, the best of, you know, we used, in, in the, the computer industry, we used to call them Bob's, the best of the best.
0: <laughs> yeah, ho- wholly agree. And while it's still very early in the life of of some revivification of psychedelics, uh, this is the time to experiment with different programs and, and get the, you know, the right fit. You want, you want the shoe that's going to let you walk uh, for a good long distance without causing blisters. So... I'm all in favor of the experiment, and and I hope that federal prosecutors and lawmakers will take uh, the same sort of hands-off approach that they did with cannabis all these years. You know, we had the the benefit um, during the Obama administration of the Cole and Ogden memos, where essentially um, the U.S. Attorney's Office was under a semi-official order not to come in and not raid or bust programs that were in well-regulated states that had, you know, medical programs that were under some level of supervision and oversight. And for the most part, they stayed hands off and, and it's worked well. But uh, unfortunately during uh, Trump's uh, tenure, uh, Jeff Sessions repealed the Colin Ogden memos, So now the U.S. attorney's offices around the country are technically free to come in and raid and bust up literally every cannabis enterprise everywhere. Um, The fact that they still haven't done it, uh, I think, is just simply grace of the situation. But in a second Trump term, if that happens, I wouldn't be so sure that cannabis is free. Indeed. uh, I would even go so far as to say I I fear a Trump second term because of that. I, I mean, the man has demonstrated he is willing to do Anything for political favor. And in point of fact, if, if you ever visit the blog on my Psychedelical X website, I wrote an article about this. And I think, in the right circumstance, if Trump thought that it would benefit him politically, either on a personal level for self aggrandizement or to punish an enemy, he would do it. And it logically follows where would you do that raid? Nancy Pelosi's district
1: and if if he ramrods this uh new court appointee through with with a six to three majority for the indefinite future uh, you know it's just kind of all over but the shouting for a long time i think
0: i fear so yes i fear so but interestingly i'm so glad you brought that up because you gave me a segue to something i did want to talk about so thank you uh (laughs) i had a very lovely uh interview yesterday with uh dr doug stoddard who is a comparative religion uh professor and in our conversation i started to get a greater crystallization in my mind of an idea i've got that might give some religious argument to a broader legalization and i'll I'll explain that in a moment but but first thing i wanted to say antecedent to that was that both he and i agree that the current makeup of the court and the current law Uh, there's a federal law called RFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, actually lends uh, a little more credence to a religious-based argument in favor of psychedelics. And now let me explain what I mean by that. So RFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, is the reestablishment of an old basis that the Supreme Court used to use to review religious questions. So in the context of psychedelics, for example, um, and this actually is what caused RIFRA to be created, it used to be that the court applied what was called the Sherbert test. And Sherbert comes from a a case by the name of Sherbert, Uh, not not a delicious dairy beverage that you would enjoy, Uh, somebody named Sherbert. And the Sherbert test was this compelling interest test, where if the court was being challenged with the question of, hey, your federal law, the way it's written or the way it's being enforced, infringes on my religious freedoms... Um, the court would have to go through this analysis and decide, is this federal law um, supported by a compelling interest that would justify a bona fide infringement of religious freedom? But then in 1990, and this is crazy, this was on on the Scalia court of all things, uh, Smith versus Oregon came out, and it was a peyote case where uh, a, a couple of Native Americans had... Put in front employment because um, part of their religious observance as members of their, their Native American church, uh, I can't remember what the specifics were, but they had to put in front employment and they were denied unemployment um, on the premise that you know peyote use is not considered okay federally. And under the Scalia Court, and Scalia wrote the the, the majority opinion, they did away with the Sherbert test, uh, and and instead just imposed this sort of very blanket uh, federal law trumps religious uh, issues or concerns, period. That freaked out everybody. And within three years, Chuck Schumer ended up um, introducing and very quickly got passed by a huge margin. This was during the Clinton administration, Rifra, which restored the Sherbert test. So now there's this compelling interest uh, test that the court must once again employ when being challenged with religious questions. Now, the reason I say this is encouraging is, amongst this, the court's not really allowed to ask uh, uh, the depth of your sincerity of religious belief. That's not fair game. Because uh, imagine having to like, go through some sort of a religious piety test. It, it's you know, like the, the, the elections test in Gulliver's Travels. What are we going to do? Crack eggs open from different ends and decide which one's better? It's goofy. Um, but then you've got Hobby Lobby. And you you all may remember Hobby Lobby from a few years ago, which uh, Hobby Lobby didn't want to pay for certain uh, abortion-related medical services as part of their company health plan because the owners of the company had a strong uh, Christian conviction that spoke against that particular practice. And they won the argument. So now Hobby Lobby, and resultingly, no company, has to provide those services if they don't choose to because of religious conviction. So since the court now is leaning more towards favoring, allowing religions to practice as they want, I think that arguably helps. So now let me give you my harebrained theory that I'm starting to cook up, and I will tell you up front, I haven't thought through it all the way. I could be completely wrong here, but I do know in the brief research I've done thus far, nobody's come up with this yet. So here's my theory. Um, and it comes about as a result, and I just happened to have these on the desk for my conversation yesterday, so I'll hold them up to the camera. Um, there's a few books that really tipped me off to this. The first, which I don't know if you can see that on the screen, is John Allegro's book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. And for those of you who might not be familiar with John Allegro, he is one of the original translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He translated the Copper Scroll, and Allegro, who's now dead, he's been dead for, for many years, uh, was a very well-respected linguist, and what he was able to do, taking his linguistic skills, was to go back to these most ancient of source documents. Again, he translated the Copper Scroll for goodness sakes, and ended up finding that a lot of the more contemporary, and by contemporary, I mean like ancient Greek, <laughs> not not like you know last week, but ancient Greek translations were just wrong. Um, And indeed, he found lots of references to these archaic cults that used Amanita mushrooms. And these cults gave rise to early Proto-Judaism and early Proto-Christianity. So, okay, this tells me there is an archaeological basis and also a religious history that ties psychedelics to the entire Abrahamic lineage. Then you add to the pile the next book, which is the Psychedelic Gospels written by Jerry and Julie Brown. I'll hold that up too so you can see it if you haven't read this one yet. And the Browns, and by the way, they're they're on the circuit. You can actually talk to them and meet them. They're on Facebook. I'm, I'm actually Facebook friends with them. Uh, and they do lectures on this. The Browns went and just started church hopping around Europe looking for iconography. And damn it all if they didn't find a bunch of it. And inside their book, there's a, a fantastic middle section here of color plates with a bunch of different color photos from inside churches. And it's the artwork, it's the sculptures, it's the stained glass, and there's mushroom images everywhere. <laughs> so again, this tells you early Christianity, these people who were like physically, literally building these churches had this in mind. Uh, and then uh, about oh God, two months ago, I read an article in um, from an archaeological journal called Tel Aviv, out of Israel. And it was talking about this 2,300-year-old altar where they took scrapings off the altar and discovered cannabis resin. Now, if you look at the biblical recipe for anointing oil, cannabis oil is part of that. And it's been misinterpreted over the years as cassia, which is just this inert, nothing, uh, crappy little flower that actually doesn't have any particular good use. And that, apparently, amongst a lot of scholars, was always a very unsatisfying ingredient, and it was long believed that cassia was a misinterpretation. Because think about it. If you've got some sort of special anointing oil that's supposed to have and impart special powers, wouldn't you expect it to have an ingredient that would do that? And lo and behold, archaeologists find a 2,300-year-old altar with cannabis oil on it. So stringing all of that together, here's my theory. I think, uh, and also with support of refer no less, that there is an argument to be made that people in the Abrahamic lineage, be it Christianity, Judaism, or even Islam, because it also ar- arises from this lineage, they may have a religious birthright to experience archaic forms of their own religion. And, and I'm not saying this in a manner to, you know, cast aspersions towards any religious group or sect or, or division, But, you know, people do get curious about the histories of the religion and the various ways it's practiced. And, uh, you know, you can look at really Orthodox Christians across the world versus more Protestant Christians, same as Jews, same as Muslims. They all practice very different ways. And if you took a very, say, Reformed Jew and put them next to a Hasidic Jew, you're going to see two very different ways of practicing Judaism. A core that's common, but the physical actions, the the rules and regulations are different. So I think in the sense that you're allowed the right to explore the different permutations of your religion, there may be an argument here that these proto-forms of the religion have evidence of psychedelic use and therefore might arguably be a basis for permission. Now, all that being said, I'm absolutely not telling anybody tomorrow, run out and say, you know, mushrooms for Jesus. That is not what I'm saying, Uh, although I'm not not saying that either. What I am saying is that I am now commencing a search for more uh, historical record and archaeological evidence to see if I can really piece this argument together and support it with, with reliable evidence that, like, if you were literally in a court of law, a judge could look at that and say, yes, I'm admitting that evidence, and yes, it's a compelling argument. So, so, Gary, that uh, if somebody that hears this podcast actually comes across
1: some evidence like that, uh, that could help you, how do, they, how do they tell you about it? How do they get it to you?
0: Sure. Uh, well, uh, you can reach out to me through my law firm, although I'd prefer if you reached out to me through my Psychedelical website. You can email me there. I am admin at psychedelicalex.com. Uh, You can also find me through Facebook and my YouTube channel. Um, Just, you know, all those different social media platforms have some method of messaging. So you can grab me in any one of those. Yeah, I would
1: suggest that unless somebody is actually a, a lawyer herself or himself, they should not contact your firm, and uh, unless they want a uh, you know a referral or something like that.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and that's mostly just in fairness to my my partners and staff. I don't want to flood them with my my hobby stuff, and and to be fair, the psychedelics aspect of my life is my hobby stuff, although it, it is part of my job too. But I try to keep those separate.
1: If there's other uh, podcasters or local societies that uh, would like to, to ask you questions or visit with you, would you uh, be willing to make, like, Zoom appearances and, and get in touch with
0: them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, in fact, that was, that was exactly what I did yesterday with Doug. So um, he actually reached out to me wanting to interview me. And just coincidence, I wanted somebody with a religious background to interview as well. So uh, <laughs> I said, let's uh, interview each other, and we'll each take a copy of the show and use it. And he thought that was swell, and I thought that was swell, and we did it.
1: And, and tomorrow, send me the, the link to that sh- that show too, and, and I'll put it in the program notes for here so people can come and listen to that. I'd like to hear that myself.
0: we Will we'll do. Um, I haven't even begun editing yet. I Just so everybody knows, I do a, a YouTube channel, so all of my stuff is video, uh, which I've had to teach myself how to do video editing. And I'm one of the few people who is only just, you know, one percent grateful for the pandemic because it forced me to stay home and learn this stuff. Uh, So I tried to make beneficial use of this rotten, terrible time in lockdown and make the most out of it. So um, you can't really see a lot of it just because we're on the computer here. But um, during pandemic, over the last four or five months, I built an entire studio here in my house. Uh, We had an extra bedroom we weren't using. And this is where I host Psychedelic Alex.
1: Cool. That sounds like it worked out pretty well for you, at least. Uh, Yeah. It sounds like more than 1%, but that's okay.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's not unreasonable. Um, But to that extent, if the editing on my show is crappy, uh, that's all me. So (laughs) every show I'm learning a little bit more about editing, it gets, uh, you know, incrementally better each show. I think within a year, it'll almost look like somebody above uh, third grade is actually editing it. Well, don't feel bad. I, I can't even
1: listen to any of my first 100 podcasts. It's like fingernails on a blackboard for me, you know. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> you uh, know? And we're all like that. Let me let me circle back to the Supreme Court for one more minute here, sure. because uh, the, the religious, you know, the separation of church and state, which doesn't really seem to be very effective from my perspective. But uh, that, you know, it's it's like uh, we can't uh, If if you're a sitting senator and you're interviewing a potential Supreme Court justice, you can't say, uh, does your religion affect you at all? And yet, you know, isn't that supposed to be the backbone of your life? Why, why can't we ask them questions about their religion?
0: Mm. Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head. It's the whole separation of church and state facade that we uh, pretend exists. Um, I think there are ways to ask clever questions to get around that problem. Um, in case, in point here, um, you know, Trump just... Proposed or nominated uh, a replacement justice who is, according to the news over the last two days, um, part of some really fringe Christian group that uh, considers men to be dominant over women, Um, which to me, if that's actually accurate, and I don't know that it is, I really don't. But if that's accurate, that's damnably weird and creepy, and I wouldn't actually want somebody like that on the Supreme Court. You know, imagine a, a female justice who has to obey their non-justice husband. You're going to tell me that wouldn't impact decisions on the court? Come on. That's fair game in sort my a, mind. Sort of an anti-Ginsburg. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like literally the opposite. If you took her and flipped her inside out, yeah. Um, oh, God, what was that? that um, the Handmaid's Tale. I mean, it's like right out of right. The Handmaid's Tale, and that... My, my wife read the books. I didn't read the books. I got uh, sucked into the show. And like the first two seasons just creeped me out. And if, if this is even an inkling of how these people believe, yeah, I don't want them near my court. Unfortunately, there but may be literally nothing any of us can do about it. Let,
1: let me just go on the record here, because she's been a professor at Notre Dame and still is uh, for a long time now. And for them to give her that platform to get where she is, I am hereby stating I will never again cheer, cheer for old Notre Dame. I am <laughs> shedding all connection with them. I don't want anything to do with them anymore.
0: Well, and, and that's a fair commentary on just critical thinking as a whole. So for the benefit of your audience, I mean, I'm a 30-year veteran lawyer. I'm AV rated. I'm I'm actually a, a participating panelist with the American Arbitration Association. I do both arbitrations and mediations. Uh, I've authored uh, more than one legal treatise. I've actually authored three of them. Uh, I'm licensed in multiple states. I have as impressive a resume as, you know, you would want. And, And I'm telling you, don't be impressed by people in power. Don't be impressed by people with high degrees. They can be as stupid and aberrant as anybody else. You really have to pick and choose and be a critical thinker. Don't fall for the cult of personality. That is exactly how our country got in the situation it's in right now.
1: Yeah. You know, I can still remember as a I was in college when I met one of the, the first time I met a, a high ranking uh, politician and and the guy was a real jerk and wasn't very bright. And I thought, my God, you know, are they all like that? And uh, I'm afraid too many of them are.
0: Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, these days, uh, particularly like in, in the afterglow of Citizens United, where money just poured into politics, you're not getting the best and brightest. You're not getting the conscientious legislator. You're getting the lackeys and lapdogs of of big money and they're going to serve some, big money something i've been harping on
1: here for a long time is the fact that you know we we can get irrit- irritated at these personalities because they all rub us the wrong way but it's really the system that allows them to get to the top you know we we really have to be looking at the system itself i think
0: oh a- absolutely you know the the current politicians fine vote them in vote them out whatever you're going to continue this cycle endlessly until you change that system. And I I think top of the list, although people are going to gripe and say it's an infringement of First Amendment rights, I don't agree. Top of the list, get the dirty money out of politics. Make the money as transparent as possible. The singular biggest problem with the Citizens United decision is it allows unlimited donations and they're blind. You can't see and I can't see who's giving the money. And I think if you could shed light, literal light on it, and out these people, and and let the rest of the country see who's putting money in, and how, and where, and why. That would be a game changer.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. Uh, of course, there's a problem of disseminating information. How how do you get it down to the the Trump base? You know, how do you how do you explain that that Trump has paid $750 a year when he did pay taxes, and he had 10 years he didn't pay taxes. And here we're trying to struggle, hoping we get another handout from the government. You know, that. how come, how do you get that
0: to the Trump people where they understand it? Uh, I don't know that you do. And then, you know, that's really a wholly different issue, too. Uh, you know, the news came out. We We all can read it. And some people are just impervious to facts. What can you do? Uh, the, the- well, you know,
1: I, I, I asked that as sort of a rhetorical question because I saw some of the uh, good old boys down in my my state of Texas where I'm still licensed to practice uh, were being interviewed about it, and they
0: were saying, good on him. You know, you're supposed to cheat the government out of all your taxes. He did really good, and they're all proud of him for doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, really what that comes back to is good citizenship and patriotism. If, if you are in that group that believes – taxes are bad and taxes are evil and nobody should pay taxes. What you're really saying is that you want a world in which it's strictly might that rules and you really don't give a shit about your neighbor. And you know, then what's the point of a country? If you don't care about the people in your country, if you don't see that there is common good and common elevation and coming together and working towards common purpose and common cause then what is the point of a country? You know, I don't want to live where we're going to have private roads and I have to pay tolls every time I turn left or right. Uh, I don't want to live in a world where there's no fire department and if my house is burning, oh, well, that's on me. Uh, I don't want to live in a world where there's no streetlights, no highways, no schools. I don't know anybody who does. Unfortunately, the propaganda of government bad, taxes bad, somehow uh, took root and festered in the hearts of people and, and and blossomed into whatever we're seeing now. And it's a shame. It's a genuine shame.
1: You know, I, I always kind of get beat down when I say this. <laughs> I don't get any support for it. But, uh, you know, this country, first of all, population wise, only India and China have more people than we do. So it's a really big group of people to get together. I mean, it's not like Finland with 10 million people. You know, it's it's a lot of folks, and if you've ever studied anything about the Civil War, you know it has never ended. You know it's still going on. You know we have we have statues of General Lee, a Civil War general on the the enemy side, and is standing on U.S. government property. You know we're honoring. That'd be like putting up a statue of Hitler if if you you know want to do comparisons. But that's it's, we wouldn't do that because the Confederacy has never gone away. You know I. I lived in the Deep South for a long time, and, and it's it's just not going to go away. I think that we've got at least two countries here if we want to unify people. But there, I just don't think there's any way you're going to get the good old boys in the Deep South and and the, the Chardonnay crowd in New York to come together, and let alone California. Heck, we can't even agree with ourselves.
0: You know? <laughs> sure. Um, and I'll, I'll say something that's even more... <laughs> Cynical and disappointing than that. And that was pretty cynical, but I'm, I'm going to be even worse. Um, I have, I'm, I'm born and raised in New York, just outside of New York City. I have lived uh, at various times in New York, California, North Carolina, and here in Arizona. And I've got bad news. Racism is everywhere, everywhere. It's pockets, or worse, uh, in some places, but it's absolutely everywhere. You know, growing up in the, in the shadow of New York City, as I did it's a very racist place i absolutely remember going to public school and you know the the groups of black kids would sit in one section of the lunchroom away from the groups of white kids Uh, and this was the norm all the years i was growing up um and it's sad and it's tragic and it continues today
1: that's right that's right Even, even if you go red state blue state you still have the the racism in both sections you know it's it, like you said, it's universal.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like even like my time in North Carolina, I lived for a year in Raleigh and I worked um, literally at the Capitol. So there, there's a, a mall there that the, all the state buildings are at. And at lunchtime, you'd go outside and you'd see this repeat during lunchtime. You know, you'd have clusters of black people all together and clusters of white people all together. They'd mix a little bit, but, you know, you, you could plainly tell that there were invisible lines. And, and it's sad. Uh, and, you know, here in my, my home state of Arizona, the past 20 something years, uh, we're about the whitest state in the nation. So we don't see it a lot here just because we don't have the diversity here. Yeah,
1: the city I lived in when I went to high school had one black family, four people in that whole city. Oof. And uh, I just got together. We had an online reunion for our 60th reunion. And uh, there are now something almost like 30 families in the city. <laughs> you know, it's still just totally, you know, a white city. Uh, and it's on, you know, about 100 miles outside of Chicago. But uh, that's that's a problem that's, you know, superimposed on top of all these other problems. And it's sort of universal. It's sort of like COVID. It's everywhere.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. And America hasn't dealt with it. It needs to. But it hasn't happened yep. yet. And that might be a great so before- purpose of psychedelics. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. For mm-hmm. sure. But before we go here, does anybody else have a, another question you want to squeeze in? Go ahead, Charles. Charles? Yeah. With the theory that you're proposing about, <clears throat> can you
0: hear me? Yep. Can you hear you just oh. fine? Oh. Now we don't. <laughs> we, we, were, we were hearing you and now we don't. Had okay. you not with- called attention to it, we would have continued to hear you. With with, with the theory that you're proposing about a religious freedom argument for psychedelics, to what extent does one need to be involved in an organized religious practice to claim that? Okay, so um, there are definitely religions that are acknowledged today that have permission, even from the DEA, to engage in psychedelics. Um, You can look around the country. There are are, um, peyote churches, uh, again, the one that I represent, uh, is just one example. Um, the Native American church, uh, although it is meant for Native Americans, they they do allow non-Natives to participate. I mean, you've got to ask permission, et cetera. Um, Ayahuasca churches are making tremendous inroads right now. They've had some, some good luck with litigation against the DEA. Um, so there are opportunities. The hard part is like starting something from scratch. My review of the law just... Ugh, it just doesn't lend itself to the creation of, of a psychedelic religion out of nothing. Uh, there have been past attempts that predate RFRA. Um One of these was uh, an LSD church, of all things, um, the Kleptonian church. In fact, I have a reference to it in the book. Um, they had early run-ins, and, and you know, people got convicted and lost their appeals, and they ended up going to prison over it. So it's bloody hard. And I, that's why I, I gave the caution earlier, you know, don't just jump out tomorrow and say, mushrooms for Jesus and start, you know, taking mushrooms because you'll probably get arrested. Uh, Lorenzo? Yeah, go ahead, Michael.
2: Yeah, I think you, should re, you can refer to more details on this. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, he had that decision, I believe, in Um his second decision or first in two thousand six, February. It was Gonzalez versus the UDV church, that ayahuasca religion. Yeah. That that decision he made or he wrote the opinion, it has all the features in there that you need for starting your own religion. And he that's what he's the, the positive decision they gave, he went through the, the history of, you know, the peyote religion and and the change that I noticed was there. His the new opinion said anybody can join the. In this case, it was the UDV church, but anybody can join one of these churches. It got it took away you need to be a native American to be in the peyote religion. So basically it legalized psychedelics. And for some reason at the time people said, Oh no, that's not going to happen. They're going to change it. But it, nothing has ever challenged this. They, they never went back. And I think the court said, you know, you guys got to do this over again. Are you familiar with that uh, decision?
0: Yeah, I, I I am. Anybody
2: Gonzalez versus UDV Church? Yeah, and I, in <laughs> I fact, really I, recommend reading it. It's very profound.
0: Yeah, I reference it in, in my book, although in fairness to this conversation, I can assure you, I don't have it memorized, so I can't hope to quote it to you. But my, my comment earlier wasn't meant to suggest that you couldn't yeah. start a new religion. You absolutely can, and there are definite pathways by which to start a new religion. What I was sure. really focusing on was... I don't think you could start a new psychedelic religion because until you have achieved recognition as a religion, you're just using psychedelics illegally, and I think you're going to risk getting in trouble, which is why I also suggested the the better path if you're looking to go that way is to hook up with an existing religion that has already received that recognition, and maybe if it's appropriate, you grow out of their doctrine and branch off. And there are some examples of this, uh, the peyote church of which I, um, have as a client, they were founded by a gentleman who was originally in the native American church, but he wanted to take it more multicultural and multiracial and wasn't being permitted to do that. So he broke off and started this multiracial multicultural peyote church. Um, The other thing I wanted to point out, too, also relative to peyote, was that the Native American church's use of peyote is a perfect, perfect example of the revival of an archaic practice of religion. Because the Native American church is, uh, you know, in the last hundred years, more contemporary. And and these Native Americans revive the old, old peyote cults that predate even them. Uh, in order to create this modern religion that it has embraced aspects of Christianity and also aspects of the traditional peyote use. And they absolutely enjoy a ton of protection under federal law. So I think that a revival of an archaic practice stands a reasonable better argument than uh, a brand new religion saying, hey, we stumbled upon this new revelation and uh, you know we've got to drop tons of acid in order to get there. I think that's a hard sell. A much harder sell.
1: Which, which circles back to the original uh, use of mushrooms in Christianity as a possibility of reviving that religion. Yeah,
0: exactly. So, you know, uh, hat tip to uh, Terence McKenna's archaic revival, I think that would be the natural progression of Terence's theory and belief. And, and I again, you know, I'm going to start looking for this evidence, and if the argument's there, by God, let's go fight a fight in court on behalf of literally every Christian, Jew, and Muslim in the world, because it would be, <laughs> according to this argument, their religious birthright. And it doesn't matter if you want to partake, you don't have to, but at least knowing that you have the right to do so is what matters.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, Gary, we're we're kind of out of time tonight, but I'd like to uh, see if you'd be willing to come back uh, maybe quarterly or something like that and give us an update on what's been going on.
0: Happy to. You name it, I'll come anytime.
1: Okay. Well, listen, uh, everybody, I appreciate you being here tonight. Uh, I'll see some of you Thursday morning. But uh, until the next time, keep the old faith and stay high.
0: (laughs) Thanks, everybody. It was fun.
1: Night, all. close <small> it fast